Today's selected scripture readings are found in 2 Samuel chapters 2 through 4. I will announce chapter and verse as we read. Take a moment to turn to chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 in your Bible to follow along. The readings will also be on the screen behind me. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, every one with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Verse 8 through 11. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites and Jezreel, and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David, and that the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Verse 17 through 18. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Verse 20 through 24. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. And Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away, so that he is gone? Verses 26 through 27. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach, so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Chapter 4, verse 1 to 2. When ish Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bana, and the name of the other 
Rechab, sons of Rimon, verses five through six. Now the sons of Rimon, the Beethrothite, Rechab and Banah set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Vivian. <clears throat> well, again, good morning. If you are uh, new with us, um, this is what we do here at the Parks Church uh, predominantly, or most of the time. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we are making our way through. Uh, we just finished First uh, Samuel uh, last weekend, going into chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, and we'll continue, obviously, uh, in, in 2 Samuel. We're, we're making quite a bit of uh, ground uh, today going through it. And so uh, I really wrestled with um, whether or not to, to, to preach this text, continue to preach this text in, in light of just all that's going on, and uh, really felt strongly, obviously, with Vivian reading the text, um, to, to wade into this today. And uh, my process in writing and praying about a sermon, um, just to peel back the curtain a little bit, is this. Um, it begins with a, a teaching team. Um, we've broken down the text over time, and uh, we, we plan it out, and then we come together every Tuesday and uh, kind of walk through the text together, pray, praying together, trying to unpack and discern what, what the Lord might be saying uh, through his text, uh, through his word. Um, and, and this Tuesday was really interesting, right? Again, this is Tuesday of this week. Um, just, just wrestling through this very complicated text. And um, one of the things, one of the questions as, as I finished that, that meeting, writing some of my notes, the question, and uh, this is going to be the question that I hope we can uh, prayerfully consider as we wade through these three chapters is this, um, and why I, I think the Lord was like, preach the text today, um, was this question. What do you believe about God? And we'll, we'll put it up here. What do you believe about God when his movement and his presence aren't obvious. What do you believe about God when his movement and his presence aren't obvious? Maybe it's in your life individually. Maybe it's culturally speaking. What do you believe about God? This is, this is a, a place where I'd, I'd insert that famous quote from A.W. Tozer, right? What, what comes to mind, what comes to our minds when we first think about God as the most important thing about us. What comes to your mind when you think about God as the most important thing about you? This is what I called last week this idea of theological thinking, our theology. What comes to mind when you think about God as the most important thing about you? Um, the passages or the, even the, the small excerpts that Vivian just read in our text, I hope, illuminated the complexity of this. Our teaching team, it was fun and not fun all in once of wrestling through all of the things that were going on uh, within this text. It reads honestly like a Netflix series if you read it, all three chapters um, together, and I hope you do. But yet what I found is that David sits in the middle of this text and I'm going to do my best to explain the scene and explain the context, but David here sits in the middle of this scene. David, who lived with a promise to be king over all of Israel. 
We saw that in 1 Samuel when David was a young boy that, 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 that Samuel anointed him and says, you're going to be king over Israel. But what David had hoped for and what David was promised, that wasn't much of a reality in the present, was it? I mean, we, we just finished 1 Samuel where David is running through the wilderness for nearly a decade, fleeing from Saul, right? The king of Israel, but David's the anointed one. You see, but David believed by faith in the hope of what God had told him all those years ago. But the question is, when will we see it come to pass? When will we see David finally be the king of Israel? Why all these scenes? Why, all, why these three chapters? Why all the complexity and all the confusion? God, where are you? Why is your promise? Why isn't it just the next scene over from being anointed David is then crowned king of Israel? Could it be that God is trying to shape and form not just David, but a whole nation, a people, to understand him? You see, if you only read your Bible, and for some of you, this is how primarily you read your Bible, you come with it, you come to the Bible with a question of what can I get out of this? How does this benefit me? Looking for clean and clear points, right? Have you ever been there? Here's what happens when you get to 2 Samuel 2, 3, and 4. You're like, I don't know how to make sense of this. True? Just be honest. In other places in your Bible, that happens as well. And you'll be immensely frustrated. But listen, the primary reason we come to the word of God is not about self. The primary reason and why we come to the Bible is God himself. How does this passage, how do these chapters, how does this verse show me who God is? Who he truly is? What his heart is like? What he is up to, seemingly even behind the scenes. Let me tell you, in these three chapters, there are no obvious movements or miracles of God on full display. Again, it seems like a mess of a scene with multiple wives and concubines and people, people dying in wars and battles over years. The time frame of these three chapters is two years what is God doing? What do we believe about God when his movement and his presence is not so obvious? Let's unpack the text and maybe we'll see. So chapter two, we're introduced to a divided kingdom. This is the nation of Israel, but it's divided into two here. The northern half, which is honestly controlled by the Philistines after the battle from, from last week's chapter that we read, and then the southern. The southern that David is made king over, which is known as Judah. The northern, which is now uh, been Abner has anointed Ishbosheth, which was a son of Saul, king over Israel, or the northern territory. And I want to give these people, because there are four main characters in this text, and so I'll use their names, but I want to make sure you, you understand. The first is David, obviously. David is the king of Judah, the southern territory of Israel. He's the one we've spent time with. He's the one I said sits. Uh, God obviously sits at the center of every text, I understand. But he's the character who's at play in all of this, okay? 
And then next is, is Abner. Abner is the commander of Saul's uh, army, right? He's the one who uh, anoints Ishbosheth. He's loyal to Saul, even though, yes, at this point, Saul has obviously died. And then you have Joab, who's the, or Ishbosheth, that's fine. You can go to Ishbosheth, who's Saul's son. This is the one who's been crowned the, the king of the north, northern Israel. So Jonathan has passed Saul's son, who would have been the rightful heir. Ishbosheth is now the next in line who Abner anoints. And then you have Joab. This is David's commander. This is David's strongman, his, his right hand, uh, if you will. So these are all the players in the scene. And it's important because they come in and out of the scene. But the very first thing in chapter 2, verse 1, is this. David inquired of the Lord. Keep that in your mind. The very, out of the very start, these are the words that the Lord wants you to be clear of. David was seeking the presence of God. And he had a question for the Lord. Shall I go up into the cities of Judah? Shall I go? And the Lord responds back to David, right? He says, you shall go. And so David does that, but there he meets some men from, from look at it here, Jabesh Gilead. This is down in verse five, if you have your text. He met some men of Jabesh Gilead. Now, the men of Jabesh Gilead up until this point were completely against David. They were loyal to Saul. So think about the time in the wilderness. These men of Jabesh Gilead would have been pursuers of David to kill him and take his life because that's what Saul wanted. And so you think this is going to be some friendly fire here? What do you think David, how do you think David is going to respond to these men who maybe for seven to 10 years have been pursuing him to kill him, have opposed him? How is he going to respond to him? Well, let's find out what David's heart is like. Verse five, here's what David said to them. May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. What? David's blessing them for their loyalty to Saul? It keeps going. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. David blessing his enemies. This is a picture, a shadow of the gospel of Jesus Christ on full display in chapter two. I'm reminded of Romans chapter five, verse eight. It says, while we were still yet sinners, another word for sinners, enemies of God, God demonstrated his love for us in that Christ died for us. These enemies of David, David blesses. These enemies of God, God has blessed in Christ Jesus. He has made a way for them. The gospel is on full display in every text, let me tell you. And David is showing you his character and his heart here at the very beginning of a very confusing and complex situation. But yet, they go to battle. The north versus the south. Abner versus Joab. And it's interesting the way the text puts it. It says in verse 14, it says, let the young men compete before us. So Abner and Joab, these two commanders, they get together and they say, let, let the young men compete before us. Now the word compete is not the same word as like have a battle or a war. It's almost like a, 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 a war games type competition. It's meant to be like, this shouldn't be too intense. Except, right? You throw a bunch of guys out on the battlefield and guess what happens? They go to war. 
They battle against each other. And in verse 16 of chapter 2, here's what it says. It says, And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Now, the Bible is articulating something very clear here. It's this idea of them all falling down together, like they're both at fault here. Like they're both not necessarily in the right, that they fell together. And this little competition, this little thing that was just supposed to be kind of this jockeying for power, what happens is it turns out into a full-fledged battle. And listen, Abner comes out on top. David's kingdom comes out on top. It tells us that Abner lost 30, uh, he lost 20 men. That's in verse 30. And, 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 and Joab, excuse me, Joab lost 20 men and Abner lost 360. Joab, David's commander, comes out on top. David's men come out on top. But let me tell you, nobody is winning at this point. These men taking matters into their own hands. And then we come into chapter 3, again, with a, a nation completely divided. And again, this is all Israel, north and south, waging war against each other for two years. And then you come into chapter 3. Right? And Abner, who, who's, who's in the north with Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth makes an accusation of Abner, a pretty strong accusation about coming against the house of Saul. And Abner's like, wait a minute. I've been loyal to Saul. I've been loyal to, to you, Ishbosheth. I'm the one who kind of put the crown on your head, if you will. Who are you to indict me of this? And listen, we don't know if it was a true indictment or a false indictment. The word of God doesn't tell us that. We can make some assumptions based upon Abner's passion against the indictment from Ishbosheth, but this causes Abner to switch sides, to go over to David's side. But let me point out something here about Abner. Abner, we have seen, is very sincere in what he believes. Abner is very authentic in what he believes. Abner is very passionate in what he believes in terms of defending the house of Saul meaning opposing David, God's anointed one. Abner is doing what he genuinely believes to be correct. However, he is not aligning himself with God's anointed king. And let me make a point here, because these words, sincerity, authenticity, passion, they are all buzzwords, big words in our culture. You can be sincerely, authentically, and passionately wrong. And Abner was. He had aligned himself with the house of Saul. Abner was working for the wrong king and the wrong kingdom. And one might say, with the right heart. Authentically, passionately, sincerely. And then verse 9. Abner, based upon this indictment by Ishbosheth, I think kind of wakes up. And he says this, he says, God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom of the house of Saul and set up the throne of David. Do you hear that from Abner? That was him just going, I'm switching teams. But he said something a little bit deeper here. He says, if I do not accomplish for David, remember that. If I don't accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, does, does Abner have that kind of power? Yeah, the answer is no to that. And so Abner comes to David and he says, I'll rally the troops and my allies for you. And David agrees. He says, come on over. But again, in the text, you can see there are a lot of I statements. 
in Abner, I will do this. I will rally the troops. I will accomplish what the Lord wants for David. In verse 24 and 25, again, this saga, this scene continues on. This is such a, a swirling scene. Joab, remember, David's commander comes and goes, wait a minute, you just let Abner go? You let the, the commander of the north, the guy who's loyal to Saul, you just made a pact with him? And Joab's like, he only came to you to figure out what you're doing, David. He only came to you to deceive you. And David's not having it. And David is, is not happy with Joab, but it gets even worse. Verses 26 and 27 of chapter 3, Joab takes matters into his own hands. It's like he's going, King David, I got you. Maybe you're a little delusional, this whole thing. Maybe you're not seeing clearly. I've got you, and here's what I'm going to do. And this is what Joab does. He murders Abner. He takes Abner's life. And David, again, not happy with Joab. David laments Abner's death. This is verse 34 of chapter 3. And I want to make this point as I made a point about Abner. I want to make a point about Joab. Joab had aligned with God's king, David, confessionally. I'm with David, but is not aligned with the heart of God's anointed king functionally. Do you see that in Joab? I'm with David. I'm his protector. I'm his commander. And David has a plan with Abner. David has welcomed Abner in, but Joab thinks he sees the bigger picture and functionally steps in and takes Abner's life from him, something David did not command. Can you see how you can confessionally be about the king's business, but not be under the dominion of the king's heart and character? That's what's taking place here. Even at the beginning of chapter two, what was David's heart? Mercy, mercy, grace. And Joab goes, David, I've got this. I think this is a warning for us that you can confess allegiance to the one true king yet be functionally out of step with him. A New Testament example of this might be Peter following Jesus as Jesus makes his way to the cross. And the soldiers who arrest him, there's one soldier on Peter's side who has him by the name of Malchus. You remember the scene? What does Peter do? He seizes the sword, right? And he swings at Malchus, right? And what does he do? He cuts off Malchus's ear. Peter's a bad shot, right? He was a fisherman. You'll have to forgive him, okay? <laughs> Showing, I'm doing God's work. I am with Jesus. Now let me do Jesus's work and let me kill those who try to take him. And Jesus is like, picks up the ear, puts it back on Malchus, heals him. Why that didn't stop everybody dead in their tracks, I don't know, all right? Jesus had a bigger plan. He puts the ear back on Malchus, heals him, and he looks at Peter and he's like, hey, I got this. Don't you forget, I'm the king. I'm the one who directs every step. Peter, fall in line. Joab, not falling in line. And this is a warning to us when we get the, the, the order out of step and out of sync. And then chapter four, the saga continues. Two spies show up. Two pro-David spies. Pro-Israel spies, okay? Pro-Judah in this, this case. And they kill Ishbosheth, Saul's son. Verse 8. And they 
say in verse 8? Here's what they say. Look at it in your, your Bible. In chapter 4. Here is the head of Ishbosheth, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. Did, a, did the Lord avenge? Or did these two spies usurp? Did these two spies find themselves out of order in taking matters into their own hands to accomplish what they thought was God's will and bringing the head of Ishbosheth to David? And David going, I didn't tell you to do that. Look at verse 9. This is exactly like the text from last week in chapter 1. Remember the Amalekite bringing the crown and the armlet to David, going, Here, here it is, my Lord. You will be crowned king. And David's like, who are you, Amalekite, to lay your hand on the anointed Saul? It's the exact same language here, verse 9. But David, but David answered these two spies with the head of Ishbosheth to go, who do you think you are? I didn't tell you to do that. You thought you were doing God's mission and you actually missed. Here's the result for you. Death. David has a completely view of what they've done from what they thought they were doing. And then the text ends, chapter four. What do we do with all of that? What do we do with all these moving parts and these, these things that are taking place that on the surface, especially to us in our 2023 ears and mindset going, what? I think there are, um, I think the clearest thing in this passage are the motivations of the mess in the scene. There are two motivations I hope even in me retelling the story have been clear. The first motivation is this, that there are a group of people in this scene that are presuming to know what God is up to. They're presuming to know what God is doing and how he's operating. That is a dangerous presumption. That we would presume to know this is what God wants. He wants the head of Ishbosheth to be given to David. This is what God wants is for us to go to battle, wants us to go to war. He wants us to, to bring in Abner. He wants us to bring in Joab, Joab wanting to take Abner's life. There's this presumption to go, God, surely this is what you want to fulfill your promises. How often do we presume to know what God wants? And listen, I'm not talking about the things that the Bible are explicitly clear in. God wants us to glorify him with our lives. God wants us to flee from sin. I'm not talking about those things. But I'm talking about the steps and places and moments in our life where we presume to know upon what God is doing. You remember the verse that says, where God speaking, he goes, my ways are you know that verse? Higher than your ways. My thoughts, not like your thoughts. So who are we to presume that we know what God, the sovereign God over the whole universe, is actually doing? And this is where I think the question that I began the sermon with is actually very difficult to answer. What do we believe about God when his presence and in his movement aren't obvious? Like if it's obvious, if it's explicit, if David would have said, go get Ishbosheth, we would have, we're not having this conversation. They would have been obeying the king. But what, what happens when it's not obvious? 
be careful not to presume upon knowing what God is doing. That happens in this text. The second thing that's very obvious is this, that we see men taking action themselves to accomplish what they have been waiting on God to do. The motivation of impatience. David needs to be king over Israel. He's promised, God said it, let's go. And we'll do anything to accomplish it to that ends. In the name of God? See, one of the major themes in the Bible is this. Is that we have a very bad habit of assuming we know what God is doing and taking action and making it happen for ourselves. Think about this. Abraham, you will have children like the stars in the sky and the sea, sand on the seashore. What happens when that doesn't occur? Matters into his own hands. Moses, Noah, all the disciples that followed Jesus. First Samuel. Do you remember when the kingdom was taken from Saul? Saul was doing what? Waiting. Where is Samuel? I need to make this sacrifice. Come on. And what happens? He can't wait any longer. And so he takes matters into his own hands and makes a sacrifice. And it's in that moment Samuel shows up and goes, what have you done? Today, because of your impatience, presuming upon you think you know what God wants, the kingdom has been torn from you and your family. Listen, impatience in the kingdom of God, impatience in our lives is not just like this, okay, like if I've got to confess a sin in a small group, I'm just going to say I'm not very patient. <laughs> You're laughing because you know that's true, and that's what you do, Right? But impatience is an indicator of a much deeper heart issue. One of control. One of lordship, one might say. And what usually happens when we do this, and listen, we're just as guilty as Abraham and Moses and all the disciples and Saul. And what usually happens when we do this is we fail to see our real motives and all that we're doing. That we'll slap the tagline on it, it's for God's glory, but really it's about us. It's about self. I'm convinced that the test of David in these chapters is the same one we've seen time and time again. Will David have patience? David maybe felt like some of you in this room, like nothing is happening, that God is not moving, that time is being wasted. David going, I was anointed by Samuel when I was a kid. I've been running for years. Come on, I'm getting old. Can David wait for God without trying to make it happen in his own strength? Abner, Joab. The two spies can't. And think about this. The goal we are so desperately waiting on, 
for some of you who you just, and maybe some of you are in the process of making it happen, going after, I don't know what it is, the goal you're so desperately waiting on, the desires you're so anxious to see happen, in of themselves, listen to me, those specific things aren't usually the point of what God is doing. He's working something much deeper in our lives. Maybe that's what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 16 when he said these famous words. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Listen to this. For whoever would save his life, save his life, meaning assert your willpower, I mean, go at it in your own strength. Let me tell you the conclusion of that, Jesus says. You'll actually lose your life. But, Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I mean, when you actually understand the heart of God, when you actually understand the character and nature of God and the depth by which he's trying to form you and shape you and show you himself, it's when we begin to release those desires, when we begin to release those anxieties that have such a grip on us that might make us step out of order. And we understand the heart of God when we say, listen, I will, I will lose my life. I will lose those things so that I might gain life and see you, Christ Jesus, for who you are. That's when we might be able to grasp what God is truly doing. Listen, God's interest was not just in making David king. How funny is it that we had the coronation yesterday? I mean, just all of this. Like, it wasn't just in making David king. Listen, they could have slapped a crown on his head and been like, you're king. God is doing something so much deep, deeper and particular He's showing David and building in David someone who knows how to wait, someone who knew how to seek God in the moments of confusion, in the moments of chaos, in the moments of unsettled realities, which we are very well acquainted with now here in McKinney, Texas, after 3.30, in Allen, Texas, in our own backyard, in a confusing, complex, disorienting world. How are we, how are we being shaped to wait on the Lord? Because some of you are going, Kyle, what do, I, what do I do with this? Are you really someone who trusts in the Lord in those kind of moments where his presence and his, his movement isn't obvious? What do I do with this? Grab your Bible, flip back one page to chapter two. What do I do with this, Kyle? Verse one, where we began. And David inquired of the Lord. We seek him. We seek his presence. And listen, we as New Testament believers, here's the reality. God has given us his Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, to comfort us, to draw us into the word, to illuminate Jesus in all things to give us patience. You know the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians, right? Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience. So the word patience there, translated, right? Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament. That word, and many of you know this, is what? Long-suffering. 
Oh, long-suffering, long-suffering, long patience, long moments maybe where you don't hear the voice of God, maybe long moments where you don't feel God's presence or experience it in the way that you think you should experience it? Are you still, is your view of God, is your theology of God still that he's good and he does good? What do you believe about God when his presence and his movement aren't obvious? And so we're going to take communion together as we do every week. We're going to take some space right now. We have a host with communion here. If you need communion, you can just lift your hand and Richard or the host will get it for you. It would be disobedient to talk about inquiring of the Lord and not inquire of him. To seek him in this space and in this place. Listen, our, our God wants to comfort you in pain. But the goal is not comfort. Our God wants to bring clarity to you. But the goal is not clarity. Our God wants you to experience his presence. But experience isn't the goal. The goal of what God is trying to do is to shape and form in your heart a vision of who he is. A faith that would be connected, your, your, your words would be connected to your heart. You say, even though I don't see it, even though I don't feel it, God, you are who you said you are. And nothing, God, can thwart your plan. Nothing can detour your promises. Listen, the promise of David will come to pass exactly when the Lord wants it. The promise of Christ, his first coming, came exactly as God wanted. And everybody missed it, by the way. Because they wanted a king, a Messiah, in their own making one that would bring political power, that would stop the pain that they were literally facing in this world. And listen, not that there's anything wrong with praying that way. It's just not the ultimate goal. And Jesus goes, I'm king over a bigger kingdom. The work I have to overthrow is a deeper work than any political system or power. And Jesus was going, I'm literally overthrowing sin itself. I'm taking the sting of death upon me so that those who trust in me would not taste that sting. See, we live in complicated middle 
So yesterday, Tess and I, yesterday evening, we had an opportunity to go to um, one of our ministry partners, Cornerstone Ranch, their big celebration. And Cornerstone Ranch, if you don't know what it is, it, it's a special needs adult um, home with permanent residents, with day programs, taking care and loving special needs adults really, really well in Christ's name. So we were able to go there and celebrate. But it was coming on the heels of getting news at 3.30 of what just took place in Allen. And I'm going, we're sitting here, but we're feeling this. We're sitting in a place where we're celebrating the beauty, literally the kingdom of God coming on earth in these people. But yet feeling really, really close to home evil and brokenness. That's the tension we live in, not just culturally, but also in our own hearts. If you're honest with yourself, you understand what I'm saying. And it's why I'm so grateful for the church. I'm so grateful for the community of God that we can come together in those moments of celebration and in those moments of suffering and we can be honest before one another and honest before the Lord, come to the table of communion again and receive, and receive the elements and know where our hope is anchored. And so I want you to stand with me. Listen, communion, this table, is a table of invitation. For those of you who don't know Jesus, this is, a this is a table of invitation where he's calling you to come and be seated with him, to confess that you need him, that all the self-saving efforts that you have tried, that I've tried, fail. The salvation belongs to those who put faith and trust in him alone. And for those who have trusted in him, it's a table of invitation for the brokenhearted for the weary, for those who are confused, for those who are suffering, for those who are hurting. And Jesus goes, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, who are weary and worn out, and you will find real capital R rest. Real rest in Jesus. Real patience. When I, Jesus, was betrayed after giving thanks, he took bread and after he broke it, he told his disciples as he would tell us this morning, this is my body broken for you. Let's take it. And in the same manner, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood which is the new covenant, the old, Jesus says, is fulfilled in me. This is the way of salvation, Jesus says, only those covered by my blood. So we raise the cup of salvation for those of us who have put their faith and trust in Jesus and take it together. Church, the only fitting response after communion it's still the same today. Worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. I pray that his presence would go before us. I pray that he would, would continue to shape and mold us this week. 
Father, forgive us for taking matters into our own hands, presuming upon a knowledge of what you are doing. God, we want to know you. And thus, in knowing you, we will know your heart and we will know how to follow you. God, I pray this week for those who are petitioning you, who are calling out to you. I pray that you would meet them in the sweetness of that uh, petition. Father, for, for those of us who will be wading into waters that are so unknown, Lord, I pray that your just grace would cover us. Father, give us the faith to live lives obedient for your glory. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.